Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, our topic is the news media and the story of carbon pollution. In the 25 years since the first congressional testimony about human-caused global warming, the fundamental science has become more clear. Abnormal climate change is happening, and humans are causing much of it. But mainstream news coverage often indicates the science is not settled. One reason is that fossil fuel companies have manufactured doubt about climate science. That's not the only reason why mounting data has not led to mounting political pressure to stabilize the Earth's life support system. Over the next hour, we'll look at the competing narratives on climate change with our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three communication experts with a deep knowledge of the carbon story. Bud Ward is editor of the Yale Forum on Climate Change in the Media and a co-founder of the Society of Environmental Journalists. John Cook is founder of Skeptical Science and co-author of Climate Change Denial: Heads in the Sand. Jim Hogan is co-founder of the Smog Blog, author of the book Climate Cover-Up: The Crusade to Deny Global Warming. He's also chair of the David Suzuki Foundation. Please welcome them to Climate One. Gentlemen, thank you for coming.、Uh, Bud Ward, let's begin with you. About 23, 24 years ago,、uh, Jim Hansen and Steve Schneider went and testified before Congress. Uh, you founded the Society of Environmental Journalists. What's the headline or the narrative arc of the story the last 20, 25 years on, on climate change? Well, I think the climate situation has gotten worse. I think we're、uh, starting to run out of time for for the kinds of、uh, reforms and ways to address the issue that we should have been taking years ago. At the same time, I think it's、uh, increasingly becoming part of our everyday culture. I think there's some good news, some some good activities going on amidst、uh, all the bad news that、uh, basically involves the lack of、uh, federal initiative and the lack of international initiative. But there are some good things happening, some important things happening. And we'll get to the good news. Uh, uh, but first,、uh, Jim Hogan, how do you see the narrative the last 20 years or so? There's been this things have become more serious. What's the headline? I think that.、Um What's troubled me is this kind of fake debate.、Uh, not so much about the debate itself, because I think facts are not really as much of a part of the problem as we believe they are.、Mm-hmm. But it's more the sort of underlying 
um, social dynamic of that narrative that's a problem, and that is that people have come to believe that if you think climate change is a problem or if you think it's not a problem, uh, that there's there's camp. It's almost like there's uh, this is what people like us believe, and if you don't think this, then you're one of them. So it's sociology and tribal in a way, or group. It's right. So underlying the the narrative of there being a debate because of the way that um, climate change denial has sort of unfolded, and the way that advocates for change on on climate change policies have kind of fought that you basically have this this ideological polarization where people it now be, it's now a matter of identity and so we have conversations with scientists and advocates that believe that well you just need to explain this more clearly because cl- something is not understood here but if you look at it closer it's actually not about uh more information it's really about this sort of identity conflict and so I think that the way the narrative is unfolded and the way it unfolds right now, uh, it reinforces this polarization. And, but it's not a good kind of polarization. It's not a polarization that takes you to a greater understanding. It's a polarization that takes you to greater gridlock. And then what's the, what's the solution then to change that, to, to get at that identity foundation that you're talking about? For me, I'm a communications guy, and one of the things that I've learned in speaking to people about this, social scientists in particular, or something I've decided myself, I wouldn't attribute this to the people I've spoken to necessarily, but I've come to believe that you need to approach these types of issues with something in the back of your mind that probably... You know, we were taught when we were younger and we've forgotten as we gotten older, and that is that uh, you could be wrong. That we need to be have an eye on intellectual modesty in these issues because if self-righteousness takes over, it reinforces this kind of uh, ideological polarization. And the self-righteousness can take, just because you're right, uh, doesn't get you off the hook. You can be right and self-righteous. You can be right and polarizing. You can be correct on the issues and correct on the science, correct on the on the emergency, but totally wrong on how you move the issue forward because of your self-righteousness. John Cook, you have a site <clears throat> called Skeptical Science that has a top ten myths uh, of people who, who uh, sort of uh, don't accept climate change. Do you think that there's a, maybe a little tone of, of what Jim Hogan was just saying about that in your site. Like, here's the truth. The other people, here's how to talk to stupid people who don't accept the facts. Well, one thing I, I always stress is that it's, it's not about stupidity. It's not like people who reject climate science. Um, there's a lot of evidence to say that it's not necessarily due to a lack of knowledge or due to, to intelligence, to, even. Yeah, exactly. Or even or even level of education. And as you said, it, uh, the biggest driving factor is, is cultural factors, is political ideology. But it, it, that's also not the whole story either. Like the, talking about the last 20, 25 years, um, what we've looked at is, is how has um, our understanding of the science evolved over that time. And among climate scientists, it's just gotten stronger, our, our confidence that humans are causing global warming. But among the public, they, they don't understand, like there's a very low perception that the scientists agree. 
Uh, and the interesting thing is that there's a, there's a, a big cultural factor in that low perception of consensus. Like conservatives are much more likely to think that climate scientists disagree than than liberals. But there's still a low perception of consensus among liberals. So I think there's a there's a mix of culture and a mix of of information deficit or misinformation surplus. So why why is that? Is it because the information's not getting out there? Is it because of, of deliberate misinformation, fossil fuel funded uh, smog and and uh, cl- clouding the science? Is that a factor? I guess the answer to that is yes. All is of those. It, uh, yeah. And and for the last 20 years plus, there's there's been a, a very strong effort to cast out on the consensus. Uh, and it goes back as early as 1991 or even earlier. Western Fuels Association spent half a million dollars uh, on a campaign to to reposition fact as theory and to cast out on on the settled facts of climate change. And since then, it hasn't been all fossil fuel. There's been ideological groups and and, and just various attempts to to I guess confuse the public about the fact that scientists have been agreeing on this for decades. There's a book, Merchants of Doubt, that, that told that story that's now going to be made into a film by Jeff Skoll. Uh, look for that next year. Jim Hogan, uh, is fossil fuel money, uh, have they been driving the narrative? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are people in the fossil fuel industry that I believe at one time or another are going to be sitting in those same seats that the tobacco industry sat in and having to account for some very tough questions about information that they knew and acted against uh, against the public interest uh, and against massive uh, public interest with climate change. But I think there's an equal uh, accountability um, on the part of environmental advocates. Uh, when you When you believe that the reason that people don't agree with you is that they don't understand when the real reason they don't agree with you is because they don't think that people like them should think like you. And you go on to communicate in a, uh, I'm right, you're wrong, let me tell you what you should think manner. This basically actually makes, if what you want is actually a solution, this is setting aside being right or setting aside winning or the sort of satisfaction that comes with somebody being wrong about something. But if you actually want something done, then I think there's sort of an equal responsibility on the part of both climate change denial and the kind of mischief that you see from the ideological right and people who are advocating for change. Uh, when you mentioned that, I thought of Al Gore's campaign initially. Remember, he had Nancy Pelosi and the New Gingrich, Al Sharpton, a bunch of people from, from political <coughs> opposites sit on a chair, spend a lot of money advertising this. And the, the purpose really was, let's show that we can reach across the aisle, come together on this issue, and it unifies. And that was later ridiculed as being naive or ineffective. Jim Hogan? Good idea, maybe wrong format, but it's a good idea to have, you know, if you have that kind of polarization that I'm talking about, the the last thing you need for Republicans is Al Gore as a spokesperson. I love Al Gore, and we all should admire him for what he's done for this issue. But there's a downside to Al Gore if, if you need people who you disagree with, you don't like, on the other side, 
you know, agreeing with you in some way, right? That he's a polarizing figure for Republicans. And so I think that there's a need to have people on that side of the issue speaking to people on that side of the issue in a way, in the, in a manner that is, um, comfortable for them in, in their, in the paradigm that they see the world through. Uh, yeah. I interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger five times when he was in office, and I always thought he was a better communicator because a lot of people would listen to Arnold uh, who wouldn't listen to Al Gore. If whatever Al Gore said, it must be – certain people are going to dismiss it before he – just <laughs> regardless, just because just because he said it. Uh, Bud Ward, let's get you in here on terms of the mainstream news coverage of this uh, of this debate and whether – you know how the, the mainstream news has covered this, this polarization. Well – you know, I'm reminded about a week ago of Tony Lazarowitz at Yale, who I work with, uh, asked me who the ten top reporters in the country were on climate. And to be honest, I couldn't come up with ten. Uh, I got to five or six, and then I started going into niche media, which are important, but are not what he had in mind. And after you get to past two or three, I mean, at, at major metropolitan dailies, you get past two or three or four in the United States. Uh, you know, the trough runs dry pretty quickly. Uh, so, and this is not true only of mainstream coverage of, of climate. As important as climate is, there are other important public policy issues that are also being uh, totally ignored or disregarded by the mainstream media. So I think we have a kind of a perfect storm with this issue, which uh, communication scholars have referred to as a wicked issue, a great term for it because of the difficulty in communicating about it, coming at a time when the media for distribution of information to many of Americans, including local television, have withered uh, to a... I mean, frankly, the New York Times isn't nearly the paper it was 10 years ago. It may still be the best single daily newspaper in the United States, in my opinion it is, but it's nowhere near what it was 10 years ago, let alone... Time Magazine, Newsweek, uh, you know, uh, U.S. News and World Report. I mean, they're just not. So it's been a uh, it's been a strange confluence of a major issue needing this kind of information and diversity arising at a time when the media are just uh, not capable of, of covering it anymore. On the New York Times, uh, the New York Times public editor recently. Uh, did a piece on New York Times uh, climate coverage. Uh, in 2013, the New York Times did away with its green blog. It disbanded its environmental desk. And this happens as the Wall Street Journal no longer has an has a, uh, environmental reporter. He now works at Stanford. Uh, KQED disbanded its climate watch. Uh, and there's been other people. One guy moved from USA Today to National Geographic. And the public editor of the New York Times quantified this and said the quantity had dropped and the quality had dropped of, of deep enterprising coverage. Uh, so let's talk about the, whether the niche players, Climate One, Grist, uh, Climate Progress, etc., can they fill this void, Bud Ward, or is it just like just trying to put pebbles into a big hole? Where You know, I think we're at the beginning stages of what's going to be a 40- or 50-year evolution of media and information and how we go about getting our information. I think there's great potential in the so-called new media. I, I think there are important voids that are, they are not yet filling. 
that are being left by the demise, if you will, of the traditional or mainstream news media. And with all the, the damage that the mainstream news media did uh, to themselves and all the neglect of outstanding coverage that they could have provided, I mean, they brought this on themselves in, in lots of ways. But some of the virtues that they provided to an informed democracy are not yet being filled, in my mind, by the new media. There's potential. But I think we're at a real risk of furthering the information gap, just like the income gap in the United States and other countries. Uh, we're at the real risk of furthering the information gap. If you really want to know about climate change, you can pretty much be very knowledgeably informed by trawling the web uh, intelligently and getting outstanding information. But you've got to go to it. It doesn't come to you. And uh, that, that runs all the risks of the information gap arising anew on this issue and other issues. Bud Ward is editor of the Yale Forum on Climate Change in the Media. We're talking about media and climate at Climate One. Jim Hogan, can niche players fill the big gap of the Metro dailies and the mainstream, shriveling mainstream media? Well, you know, I started the Smog blog uh, quite a while ago. And so I would say it's been, for me, astounding that, you know, a small group of people could have such a big audience. And what is the audience? Well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Big audience for us, you know, if we have a really good day, we might get 70,000 uh-huh. readers of a piece, right? Uh, most days are a lot less than that. But then there's this kind of odd thing that happens is on in social media when you have lots of friends who respect you, they'll take your stuff and push it out on theirs, right? So you've got not just one blog that has... 50,000 readers in a particular day, but then you've got a whole bunch. And before you know it, you've got actually millions of people. You, you actually have, you know, readership that's bigger than our, our daily newspaper. The problem is that the people who read it are probably not the people who need to. And there tends to be the way, you know, there's a guy that I interviewed for a new book I'm writing named Jonathan Haidt who says, Morality both binds and blinds us. So we have these kinds of moral views of the world that pull us together in teams and pit us against other teams and blind us to the truth. And there's no better place to do, to just expose yourself to what you already think than blogs and online media. And to have it just reinforce what you already think and never be exposed to the reality of somebody else. I mean, just because somebody doesn't think that climate change is as big a problem as I think it is doesn't mean they're, you know, a crazy person you should never listen to. They may actually have a lot to say. In fact, they probably do. But the Internet basically creates this divide. I'm, I, I wonder if that's not what you were talking about. Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, in, in this week in particular with the loss of uh, Nelson Mandela, and how he was able to bring people together. A number of us yesterday at a conference here in town listened to former Maine Republican Senator Olympia Snow, who was really one of those senators who was able to cross the aisle. And she made an interesting comment. She said she learned an awful lot in her 34 years on Capitol Hill, learned an awful lot from those who she disagreed with. Mm-hmm. And Mandela and President Obama yesterday made a somewhat similar point. Uh, and I think we've lost that. Uh, I think that's one of the one of the things we badly need, but I think we've lost that too. 
Because there is no single monopoly on wisdom or intelligence on this issue. We need to have a strong, aggressive debate on what to do about this issue. We don't need another decade wasted on is it humans, is carbon dioxide a pollutant, and is earth warming. We know that. The evidence is compelling. So as, as strong as it can be, we know that. But we need a good, hard debate on what to do about it and how soon and how important it is. That's been one of the victims, I think. Well, let's ask Jim Hogan and then John Cook what you do, if anything, to try to reach out beyond the choir to, to get people who, who might not be in your uh, the same tribe or mindset. Uh, John Cook, let's ask you first. You know, try to get people, because it's kind of geared, partly skeptical science is geared, here's some clubs you can kind of, you know, knock some sense into deniers, right? Yeah, I, I guess what we found was a similar experience to what Jim reported. We found that the, the biggest impact we make is when other, other um, third parties take our content and, and republish it in other venues. And what that does is reach both a much broader audience than just the people who visit our website, who are usually people engaged with the climate issue already, and also a, a whole a much more diverse audience. So we found that our content is being used in our university curriculum, so it's going out to university students in, in, in books and, and university textbooks, so it just it reaches a lot broader people than just, just our um, climate bloggers. And, and even uh, our TV documentaries and, and shows will just grab infographics that we would create or, or arguments that we um, publish. And so, so what we've done, realising that, is is create our content in a way that makes it as easy as possible for the third parties to republish it and share it around and also for social media to share it so that one person who reads our site might share it but then their whole network of people will get access to that information. And if they're sharing it to pillory it and make fun of it, that's okay? I love what these people are crazy people are saying. Well, I guess you could argue there's no such thing as a bad publicity. There you go, okay. <laughs> yeah. Jim Hogan, what... Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think um, our site, at least part of the ori- my original idea, was to sort of help make people, average people, more savvy about how peacetime propaganda works, how public, re- I'm a public relations person. And so what I was trying to do is kind of explain public, re- you know, public relations from the oil and gas industry and the coal industry to people. And what I found is that I constantly had to rein in the people who are writing because you get so angry at people who are lying or people who are misleading or you, it's very easy to get carried away and to, I guess what, <laughs> what I ended up realizing was that I not only had to rein them in, but I had to rein myself in and what I found is that it's like a lot harder than I thought. And so when I started writing this new book I'm writing called The Polluted Public Square, one of the first people I talked to was uh, a Zen Buddhist monk named Thich Nhat Hanh. And I spent an hour with him and David Suzuki. And right at the very end of the, um, at the end of the interview, I said to him, you're not saying that we shouldn't be activists, are you? I mean, you, you've been an act, when you were in Vietnam, you were an activist, you know, to protect the monks and nuns in your, in your monastery. I know that you used to, you know, paste up the faces of bad policemen in, 
you know, who were harassing people in your monastery. So it's not like you don't believe in activism. And because he'd been making these comments that made me wonder about it. And so he kind of looked at me, and I, you know, if you ever met Thich Nhat Hanh, and having him look at you is quite an experience. Uh, and he was very close. He was this close, right? And it, there was this kind of look of, kind of like right into my soul kind of look. And he said, speak the truth, but not to punish. And ever since he said that, you know, I remember I was walking off the stage and my wife said, now, you heard what he said, didn't you? You heard what he said, right? And I, I realized that how easy it is to suffer from that problem. Self-righteousness is like a virus. And a lot of the time, it's so subtle you don't know you have it. And so, to get back to your question, that place in people, if you want to reach out beyond the converted, is not helpful. You need to start someplace deeper than your mouth in communicating with people because people are not stupid and they know uh, what you're up to and what you're feeling. And if you don't deal with the inner ecology, the outer ecology doesn't have a chance. And dealing with the inner ecology is the hardest problem we have, for me anyway, it, it is. So does that mean that villainization of oil company executives, that sort of thing, uh, is counterproductive? Um, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a really hard one. I, I would say um, you want to do it mindfully. Uh, I think if you think the world is full of evil people and they're surrounding you, you probably have to get your psyche checked rather than these people, right? And But I do think that there's been some really bad behavior. I mean, I haven't closed down blog because there's a role for that. But I think you need to be extremely mindful about are you taking the, the polarization that you're creating into the future or into the past? Are you creating gridlock? Or understanding, and there was a, a, a rabbi named uh, Hillel, who lived around the time of, of Jesus, who said, who talked about um, debate for the sake of heaven, and debate for the sake of defeat, winning, and said, you know, this one's good. Heaven means greater insight. If we we want to have those debates, so we can understand better. We don't want to have debates for the sake of just beating and winning. Those tend to bring out the bad parts of people, right? And so it's not like this is like new. This People have understood this for a long time, right? But we tend to be too busy uh, to, to sort of be this and not have the time to really check ourselves. And many of us don't have the relationships that we should have with sort of spiritual sources of, of self-development that allow us to kind of look at ourselves and clean this kind of stuff up. And we can end up being part of the problem when, even when we're right about the issue. And I think the pro- part of the problem is, uh, is that when you have the science on your side, it's easy to think you're right. And it's easy to overlook bad behavior because people who are opposing it seem so unbelievably unreasonable. John Cook, you do a lot of work looking into the 
I, I now use this term with a little bit of hesitation, the denial sphere, people who, who de- deny the science. Uh, do you, let's get your response in that frame to, to what Jim Hogan just said about the motivations and the way those people are approached uh, and, and the way they spread denial. Hmm. I mean, I think it's quite instructive to, to consider, the, like, to understand the psychology that comes into play when climate, cha- climate change attitudes are involved. And like the, the question, how do you distinguish between someone who's deliberately misleading and someone who genuinely believes, it's actually an extremely difficult, nearly impossible thing to do because the, the kind of arguments that someone would use to deliberately mislead someone manifest in exactly the same way as the argument someone would use if their, their cognitive bias just um, pushes them towards... Um, towards these same arguments. So, for example, uh, like a, one, a popular argument that kind of came up earlier was, was the use of fake experts to cast out on the, the level of scientific agreement. So getting, getting people, spokespeople who aren't experts in climate science but convey that impression of expertise, and, and that's a popular tactic to use to, to betray the impression that there's this 50-50 debate among the climate science community. But then if somebody... Um, is ideologically biased that they they just have a, a tendency to attribute more expertise to people who who they agree with, and so so it manifests in the same way they they um, consider these non-experts as experts in climate change um, as a genuine belief. So so I tend to um, to uh, examine the the um, behaviour rather than the motive behind it. Like if if someone's misinforming people you can't comment on whether they're lying or whether they genuinely believe it. You just have to address the behavior. Uh, let's talk about Fox News. What role does Fox News, Jim Hogan, and then I'd like to get Bud Ward on this, play in the, in the climate debate? You've looked at that a little bit. This is just my opinion. Uh, well, it's actually not my opinion. It's an opinion of a guy that I interviewed named Jason Stanley. And he said uh, specifically about Fox News that he and a bunch of his friends were sitting around having dinner one night and they were talking about Fox News and this tagline of fair and balanced. Right? And he said, his friends were saying, well, you know, do you know anybody who thinks Fox News is fair and balanced? And no one knew anyone. And then they go on to talk about, well, do you actually think Fox News thinks that they're fair and balanced? And they go, um, probably not. And so, like, what is this about? And so his view is that... They don't, they're not actually trying to convince you that they're fair and balanced. They're trying to convince you that nobody is. And that is like really, really dangerous. Because that's essentially saying there are no such thing as facts. There is no such thing as objectivity. You can't believe what anybody is saying because everybody's out just, just out to manipulate you for their own purposes. So why, why would you even go to the public square? Why bother? And if, you know, if you ask me what the biggest problem of climate change inaction on climate change is, it's not climate change denial. It's that people have just turned off. You know, they basically, you know, Deborah Tannen says, you know, you hear a ruckus outside your window, you open the window to find out what's going on, unless there's a ruckus every night. And then you do the opposite. You just kind of, like, batten down the hatches and ignore it. That sort of disinterest and mistrust and public disengagement because of all the racket, is a bigger problem than climate change denial. I'm sorry, I totally forgot what your question was. Bud Ward, Fox News. 
Well, I, I agree with a lot of what Jim said there. I think that, you know, the, there are a lot of editors around the country who are experiencing what I'll call climate fatigue. Uh, they've been on this issue for 20, 25 years. It's a good day one story. It's a lousy day two story. And, uh, you know, most editors worth their salt would kill to have a, now listen carefully, to have a well-researched, well-reported, well-documented, well-sourced, beautifully laid out story saying it's a hoax. If that story exists, that's a Pulitzer. And I want my byline on it. Unfortunately, the story doesn't exist. You can't do it. But most journalists worth their salt, there still are some out there, would kill to have that story. I think the demographics of the Fox News audience says a lot. You know, it's clearly an audience that's predisposed to accept a lot, not all, of what Fox News does. And I'd say that just like the media isn't monolithic, even Fox News isn't monolithic. Their talk shows are clearly uh, off the scales, uh, to the right, if you will, and full of errors, probably deliberate errors, on climate and climate science. That's not necessarily the case with all of their news programming. It's certainly not the case with your local Fox affiliate. Your local Fox affiliate may be treating this issue fairly responsibly, and they have a lot of discretion to do that. So even Fox News is not monolithic. But some of the criticisms that I would apply to Fox News, frankly, I would apply to MSNBC also. Uh, so I think uh, both of them, are pox on both your houses, a bit more, a stronger pox, frankly, on, on uh, Fox than on MSNBC. But uh, saying that, it doesn't leave the other, the, the three uh, legacy networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC in, in the U.S., uh, much better. Uh, they still uh, have problems with this issue, too. And uh, I'd say, you know, clearly PBS stands above uh, the rest in terms of its uh, coverage of this issue, although it's far from perfect. And even the news hour, the, what used to be the Neil Laird news hour, recently created a, a major blunder with what Jim was referring to earlier when he referred to the false balance. Uh, so even PBS is, uh, is not above it. Uh, it's a tough issue to cover. We talked earlier about some uh, positive stories. So uh, I'd like to offer one and then get your comments on some of the bright stories that might have been told or need to be need to be retold. And one that comes first to me is, is Tesla. Tesla is an amazing success story. It's sexy. It's made it's changed people's perceptions of what electric cars are. A lot of people who don't care about polar bears or climate love it for its technological sophistication. It's cool. Uh, and it's and it's a great story and a great six, uh, a year ago I might have bet that Tesla might not make it. Uh, so Bud Ward, what are some other positive stories uh, that have been told or need to be told more? Well, the New York Times front page the piece the other day saying, talking about major corporations, two dozen, two and a half dozen, who are basically getting very serious about factoring the, the strong likelihood that there's going to be a carbon uh, tax in our lifetime. Uh, certainly, we hope in our lifetime. Uh, factoring that into their economics, they're taking that as given. I thought Jim's comment was was right on when he said earlier that the closer you get to the people, the more good news there is, the more good activity there is. And I certainly agree with that. There are some amazingly encouraging things going on to address this issue, independent of the stalemate in Washington, D.C., on moving forward with this issue. It's happening at community levels. It's happening in certain corporations. It's happening in boardrooms. It's certainly happening in the insurance industry. 
so there are some really uh, encouraging signs. It's just, frankly, not enough. And that those are stories on the business pages, not necessarily on the environmental pages. Uh, Jim Hogan, positive stories. Uh, One of the, no, I mean, I, I have them. I was just trying to think of one, but I, I, um, I told you about UBC and how they're going to exceed their University of Kyoto, British Columbia, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's a very positive uh, story, and it continues uh, with you know retrofitting and various kinds of uh, shifts in the type of fuels they're using. UBC is the University of British Columbia, um, but I think there's something else that's even more positive, and this is something. Peter Senge is very, very interested in, and that's young people. And the, the way, if you ever get a chance to meet him, he's a, an amazing man uh, at MIT, uh, a systems thinker uh, who's very concerned about climate change. And uh, he's very interested in young people, so he does a lot of work in education. And one of the things that I've noticed in universities across Canada is that students coming into universities are demanding that sustainability uh, be uh, folded into any of the faculties that they're going into. So it's in law. At UBC, there is sustainability in the law faculty, in engineering. And, and so you see this, really, when you think about sustainability, sustainability is actually about young people. And uh, young people don't have the problem that a lot of older people do in sort of pulling all this together. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting progressive things happening with young people, and certainly in universities across Canada, from McGill to UBC to, to Simon Fraser and uh, University of Victoria, are changing their curriculum to help people better understand how we practice law and engineering and all these other am- amazing things that we do in a more sustainable manner. John Cook? Well, Jim and I were having a, a competition earlier on who was worse, Australia or Canada at the moment. I- Australia wins hand down. Thank um, you. That's good. Finally. In terms of being a, a dirty fuel economy? <laughs> well, just the general direction, I guess, of the government and, and how supportive they are of climate action. But one thing that is encouraging in Australia is just the way renewable prices have dropped so sharply. Like, like solar power is, is so much cheaper than it was back when we got our solar panels on the roof. And, and even um, uh, friends of ours who don't really accept the science of climate change are still asking us about solar panels and, and just interested in it from an economic point of view. And I, I got into big discussions with my dad for quite a while over climate change, and he, he too wasn't really that accepting of the science. But he crunched the numbers and got solar panels on his roof because it just made financial sense. And then the funny thing was afterwards, he, he suddenly he accepted the science, and it was the behaviour change that, that drove the attitude change. It just shows that human mind is a bit of a complicated, crazy thing. It's not just one factor that... That drives uh, what we believe. We've had people here talk about that. If you take one action, you're more likely to take another action. And sort of that, that first step uh, opens the door to lots of things. The Keystone Pipeline has been uh, on the front pages a lot. It continues to be sort of an icon uh, of the climate debate, et cetera. Let's talk about that as a news story, both as a communications piece as well as uh, something that, that has all the elements in here. Um, Bud Ward, you know, uh, Keystone Pipeline gets lots of coverage. How would you analyze the coverage of it? Well, I think the coverage is going to continue to emerge, and it's a tough it's a tough issue for the media because uh, because it has been become and has been made uh, such an icon. Uh, probably 
uh, how we do as a world society in addressing climate change is even bigger than the question of what we do about Keystone. Uh, whether we, whether the president uh, decides to proceed or not to proceed from the U.S. standpoint with uh, Keystone, we're going to st- still have major challenges, whichever way uh, he goes on that issue. I would say one, one thing, Greg, in the discussion of good news, I think it's important that we recognize that we've come through a period in the past seven years or so in which we had an administration in Washington which came in strongly committed and strongly knowledgeable on this issue. It came in for a time being with majority control in both houses of Congress. It decided not to pursue this issue as its highest priority. Uh, it has basically gone mute on this issue to a large extent. Uh, there's absolutely no prospect of uh, federal action outside of the regulatory area, meaning EPA regulation, coal-fired power plants. And uh, we wouldn't have guessed uh, at the first inauguration that we'd be sitting back and saying uh, we've, we've gone nowhere on this issue. And I think that's a, a bit of uh, sobering news. The U.S. leadership, which we once exerted in, in the world on, uh, on environmental issues broadly, is completely gone. It's just no U.S. leadership. As a matter of fact, I'd suggest that there's no U.S. leader. I mean, who is the leader on climate change in the United States Senate or the United States Congress? We don't have an Ed Muskie uh, like we used to have. Uh, and there are, there are some decent people, but there's no U.S. leader. I agree with the comments that were made earlier about Al Gore. Terrific. We couldn't have done without him. But he's the wrong leader right now. He's the wrong face on the image. Used to be John McCain. That changed. Uh, it sounds like you don't put much faith in the president's climate plan that he announced in a speech in Washington earlier this year. I, I put lots of interest in speeches, but I think I'd rather see the action than the speeches. And uh, there's been some decent speeches, some earlier. But remember, this is a guy who's, who, who can and still does, as a witness just yesterday, uh, make terrific speeches. But he has not chosen to use the bully pulpit. And for a long time, there was, a, there was a, a, a mask on this issue. Don't talk about climate, certainly coming into the last elections. So uh, I, I think they've kind of blown some, some opportunities. Jim Hogan, uh, President Obama as a climate communicator. Um, you know, I'm yet to be convinced that liberals are better on the environment than conservatives. Um, George Shultz was here a couple of weeks ago. He reminded us that it was under President Nixon, the EPA was created, uh, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, uh, right. that they actually, and then Montreal Protocol. He says conservatives actually get things done. What have Democrats done? Yeah, John Fraser, who was the Minister of the Environment in a conservative government in Canada, was part of the, you know, the ozone, the the Montreal Protocol, which, you know, and if you believe the New York Times this morning, you know, has contributed a lot to uh, mitigation of climate change. Uh, also behind acid rain, uh, action on acid rain. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that there's, uh, you know, to go back to the Keystone Pipeline, it is not a good idea to say yes to the Keystone Pipeline because I think it, it sort of endorses uh, bad behavior. Uh, our government in Canada, and I, don't, I say this as an individual citizen, not as chair of the David Suzuki Foundation, but our government has not done anything on climate change. It needs to do something on climate change. If we said yes to the Keystone Pipeline, we would be saying yes to bullying. We would be saying yes to uh, complete disregard for the 
need to clean up and reduce green, clean up the tar sands, the oil sands, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The real problem for the, I think, for the Keystone pipeline is not Bill McKibben. It's Stephen Harper. Uh, with that, that ideological. Prime Minister of Canada. Right. The ideological response to climate change. Advertising does not reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And if you lived in Canada, you would think it did. Right? And so I think, anyway, I don't know if that's where you're going with your question, but that's certainly what I think about the Keystone Pipeline. You're a savvy communicator. You can take my question whenever <laughs> direction you want. You know that. So, uh, we're gonna, uh, pause for a moment and invite your participation while we're gonna bring up the, uh, Bring up the microphone. Invite you to come, come join us, and hope you will uh, um, come on. And don't be shy to come up in and join us. Uh, while we're uh, doing that, I want to. It's going to come around. Looks like I've got some people coming, so we'll have you come on up. And uh, well, Greg, can I sure. can I briefly, with all due respect to George Schultz and and all he's brought to this issue, uh, there was one factual point that I'd like to correct. Uh, the Republican Party does deserve a lot of early credit for, for passing some of those enabling uh, laws and legislation. Uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, Richard Nixon declared the, the Environmental Decade, the Clean Air Act. But I think you mentioned also the Clean Water Act. And the Clean Water Act was actually vetoed by President Nixon and had to be overridden by the U.S. Senate, the Democratic Senate at the, at the time. So I wouldn't give the Nixon administration as much credit for the Clean Water Act as it might have deserved in some and of the other areas. That was probably me, not him, making that mistake. Thanks for that correction. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. First question. Welcome. Oh, hi. I'm Raleigh McLemore. I'm a retired science teacher here in California. Um, science teachers really represent a potential, you know, public opinion making force, and they're confronted with some of the noise that you're hearing. You know, whether we get an article from a a parent that says the Antarctic ice sheet is growing, so what you're teaching my son or daughter is wrong. And, uh, you know, from the U.K. Daily Mail, that's the most recent one I saw from a guy named Charlie. I think his name is Rose. Um, Oftentimes, the people who are giving us this information are really good parents who are trying to find out what's right or wrong. They're not usually ideologues, I don't think. (laughs) But it often leaves the teacher who has... I think sometimes the bare minimum of knowledge about climate change, I mean, we're teaching what we know, but we don't know what's being, what, all of it, right? And so sometimes it really throws us for a loop. Did you have a question? The, the question is, <laughs> um, oh, sorry. <laughs> the, 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 well, actually, it's more of a statement. Make sure that you reach towards those thousands of people who are teaching climate change every day. Don't forget us. And sometimes... It helps. Like National Science Center for Science Education is doing this, trying to actively train teachers on how to teach climate change. The Heartland Foundation just sent out a massive mailing to everybody saying how climate change is wrong, and I don't see the other side to it. Okay. Thank so. you. Anyone want to tackle that? John Cook? Um, the American Geophysical Union are holding a full meeting conference uh, this week, and I'm actually talking there tomorrow on this topic about the problem of misinformation and, and how do teachers deal with it. And, and one um, approach that I'm suggesting is that addressing misinformation in the classroom is actually a powerful educational opportunity because education isn't just about um, pour, pouring new information into students' uh, heads. It's also about correcting misconceptions that they have. 
And, and the most effective way of correcting misconceptions is to actually activate that misconception in the classroom and then replace it with the correct conception. And so, so teachable the, moment rather than something to be just swept away. Yeah. That's right. And so, so there's a, two decades of research into this area, and, and it, it finds that addressing misconceptions directly, head on, and explicitly in the classroom is actually a powerful educational opportunity. Jim Hogan. Yeah, and and I think that part of it is um, to try to not focus solely on the good versus evil behavior type of narrative. It seems to me that exploring the motivation. So when I did the book tour for Climate Cover-Up, people would say, you know, how can these people sleep at night? Like, what motivates them to do this? And I didn't know. You know, a lot of the time, I don't know the answer to that, what's going on in somebody's mind. You know, I used to say, you know, money seems to me to be the most obvious, you know, money and money and ideology, right? But actually taking it a little bit deeper and starting to look at the kind of uh, social psychology of how people behave in groups. And, you know, uh, there's a great book, Where Are You, who are just oh, right there. Yeah, there's a fantastic book written by a woman from L.A. Uh, named uh, Carol uh, Tavris called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. She, she explains the social psychology of... Uh, these type of denial and in a way that is clearer, right? That people, people self-justify. It doesn't matter whether you're on the left or you're on the right. We all self-justify. We make a decision and then we look for all sorts of reasons for why that decision was right. We don't like to admit we're wrong. We especially don't like to do it in public. And when somebody else is attacking us, we even don't want to do it. Uh, we, we don't want to do it even more so. And so people understanding the kind of social psychology, students understanding the social psychology of what's behind this is important because people who lie in leadership positions are dangerous people. But people who suffer from this type of self-justification, this avoidance of cognitive dissonance, these are people who are way more dangerous because they cannot self-correct. The person who's a liar, you know, I did not sleep with that woman, they kind of know they're lying. They're less dangerous than the person who's first lied to themselves, and now they're going to lie to you. And sort of going into, in a kind of a, you know, as an educator, into an understanding of that, to me, is uh, would be really valuable for a young person uh, to understand that. Jim Hogan is co-founder of the Smog Blog. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, John Mashey here. Uh, I write for DSmog blog and do work with skeptical science. Uh, so a question was sort of alluded to, but maybe want to address some more, is the odd connections with the tobacco industry. Right. That came up in Merchants of Doubt. Uh, it was discovered last year, actually, by folks at UC San Francisco, that the Tea Party was basically constructed not just by the Koch brothers, but by the tobacco industry. And that story broke in uh, D-Smog Block. Um, uh, so anyway, could you guys address that in terms of the public relations techniques used and, and uh, any other relations? You know, I think it varies by country, so maybe you can say a little bit about that. I'd like to tackle that quickly. Tobacco and oil. You want me to do John Cook? Well, I'll just say one quick thing about it. Um, I think there's a, as a communicator, there's a powerful story there, and it's a story that resonates with people, the, the story that, um, that the tobacco industry uh, misled people about about the link between smoking and, and lung cancer. 
and the same techniques are being used today about climate change. Like people know about about the health problems with tobacco, and so by joining the dots between those misleading techniques and and what's happening now, it's a it's a way to tell a human story, to put the climate controversy in context. Need a Russell Crowe movie and oil <laughs> people uh, really bristle at being. A, associated or compared to tobacco. It really, I've noticed it really can get under their skin. Anything else on that? Yeah, well, I mean, that would use, and I knew that, so in D-Smog Blog, that's one of our key narratives, is this, is trying to show the relationship. And the Advancement of Sound Science Coalition was one of the original organizations that passed on what was learned on behalf of Philip Morris about creating doubt in public thinking about uh, cancer and cigarettes uh, to climate uh, change issues uh, so that, and the idea is through a bunch of techniques, things like, things that we call like astroturfing, um, we call it uh, ventriloquism, so you're basically, an astroturf is like a, astroturf group is like a face, fake grassroots organization. Um, uh, ventriloquism is basically, you know, putting uh, a white lab coat on somebody and, you know, you know, giving the sort of corporate sort of speaking uh, points, uh, delivering them through that person. But right at the very bottom of this problem is these people use social science. These people know how to take advantage of the cracks in the way people think. And they play with that. And people need to understand how that, that process works, especially something that George Lakoff talks a lot about is the power of repetition. Repetition, uh, even of false ideas. It goes all the way back to the Second World War where you, in the, the sort of demonizing, demonization of a, of a people, uh, that you basically, they knew, they learned these things over and over and over again. And even if you don't trust the source of it, there's research that shows that it actually has an impact on the way you think about things. So I think that is another area that we need to better understand, not just climate science, not just the, the social psychology of this, but also how does propaganda work? Propaganda is more than just name-calling. There is such a thing as propaganda. It has been studied. Academics have looked at it. It has a history. There are techniques they are successful in manipulating people. And they can be used on, on the behalf of the tobacco industry, on behalf of the fossil fuel industry, or some kind of evil political belief. Just to follow up on what Jim's <coughs> talking about too, I, I think there's a, a really useful approach is to help people, or try, give them the skills to detect propaganda. And, and one of the social science experiments I've recently performed is is testing the effect of of explaining the, the tobacco industry tactics and then and then joining the dots between that and, and what's happening with climate change and what I found was priming people and then and then showing them misinformation it either neutralizes the misinformation or it can cause it to backfire. Uh-huh. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. I want to thank all of you for this great intelligent discussion and your individual work. My name is Peter Joseph. I work with Citizens Climate Lobby. We're advocating a revenue-neutral carbon tax. And I want to know what your opinion is of its chances and how it might work to counter some of these psychology 
uh, and the propaganda that's been out there for so long. It seems that uh, uh, money is a universal uh, substance that everybody understands. And as long as carbon pollution is profitable, it seems like it's going to happen. But as soon as it becomes clear that it will become less and less profitable through a carbon tax that's rising, that there will be a psychological shift in people's understanding of the whole energy economy. I'd like to know what you think of that. Cap and trade was made political poison. Uh, now carbon tax seems to be getting some traction. Who'd like to, uh, uh, Bud Ward? Well, I would say the work of the citizens' climate lobby is really quite interesting. It's a fairly new adventure, a fairly new grassroots issue, bottom-up. I think it does uh, make a case that should and could appeal to political conservatives, if you will. Uh, I, I think it has lots of merit behind it. I think, quite frankly, uh, cap-and-trade was a disaster, and uh, it may be a, a good thing that we didn't pass cap-and-trade. Of course, we need, need to pass something. But I agreed with some of the comments at the time that this is the worst, uh, worst, worst legislation I've ever seen. Let's pass it right away because we needed something. We needed to get started, and we didn't pass it, of course. But um, I think there are, there are some real winning arguments that can appeal across the aisle, and I think this kind of – I mean, we're, we're going to have a carbon tax at uh, some point in our, our history, hopefully sooner rather than later. And uh, we still have to get over the scars from the cap-and-trade battle – and uh, there are very few legislators. I mean, I, I assure you, regardless of what your position is on climate change, and mine is fairly aggressive toward controlling it, I would be troubled going to my member of Congress in many, many districts across the United States and many, many states across the United States and say it's in our political, personal best interest to support cap and trade. Uh, it's a tough sell, even if you really need to do something about this issue. But I think the approach uh, CCL is taking is a lot, lot of merit. I think it's winning some uh, support in some conservative quarters. Most of all, in my home in Virginia, the, the very, very conservative Richmond Times-Dispatch newspaper, its editorial page is, is really to the right of the Wall Street Journal and always has been. And uh, it came out and basically said within the past six weeks, eight weeks, the science is real. We've got to get on this. Forget about the debate. Forget about the denialism or whatever you want to call it. The science is real. Some of those editors probably have uh, homes on the Virginia shore. Uh, uh, Jim Hogan? Yeah, well, we have a carbon tax in British Columbia where I'm from, and uh, it was put in place by a uh, um, basically a right-of-center premier who kind of shocked everyone. And so I would say one of the lessons, it's, although it's not perfect, there's some pretty good policies, not just the pricing on carbon, but climate policies in general. Uh, they're being sort of nibbled away at for other reasons, but it's very different if you have somebody on the right who no one would expect to do it than somebody on the left. So when you see somebody on the left do it, that's what you expect from that kind of ideological point of view. But you don't expect somebody on the right who would do it at the cost of their political skin. So it has people scratching their heads, which is, I think these days, you know, a good thing. And so find somebody on the right. Yeah, this, is, this is the old Nixon goes to China story. Mm -hmm. You know, only, no Democrat could have gone to China when Nixon did. And probably no Democrat can come out and support, the liberal Democrat can come out and support uh, doing something about carbon trade. We, we probably need a really smart Republican legislator. And uh, President Christie, next question. 
Um, uh, Greg, I was here uh, with your program with James Hansen earlier, and um, we all know we have a very small window of opportunity available to us. And um, I'm a grandmother to 11 grandchildren, and um, (laughs) I'm not hearing a way forward, I'm sorry, (laughs) from this group. (laughs) It's a nice discussion, but, you know, it's not a way forward. And uh, Bill McKibben's name was mentioned, and maybe I picked up somewhat derogatorily, but he is an activist, and I'm not hearing a lot about activism. And uh, a lot of people believe that, you know, forget about the people at the top. It has to be a groundswell of activists around the world. Bill McKibben is trying to make that happen. So um, I'm getting impatient. And uh, what do you think about the role of activism in uh, taking advantage of this small window of opportunity before, you know, uh, discussion over. Thank you. Jim Hogan, without advocates, environmentalists, Bill, Bill McKinnon and others, we may not even be where we are. We wouldn't know Absolutely. what we know. And, and certainly I would not want to, you know, being chair of the David Suzuki Foundation, I, we have our version of Bill McKibben in Canada, David Suzuki, and he's certainly an activist, and uh, I admire Bill. Uh, but I think that... Uh, let me tell you what the Dalai Lama told me about this. He said, uh, I asked him if he had uh, any advice for climate scientists when I interviewed him. And he said that when he first started talking about compassion, it was like 39 years ago, and that, so he's just been, he said, I've just been saying the same thing over and over and over and over again for 39 years. And I only feel like now people are actually starting to listen. And I see it a response from people interested in, in compassion. And that he said, we have a, a saying in Tibet that if you fail, if you fall down, get up. Try again. If you fall down twice, get up again. Try again. Nine times fall down, nine times get up. And he said, uh, without going into the details, he went into something about messaging. But right at the very end, we get up, the interview's over, and we're leaving the room. And he reaches out and tries to touch my forehead with his finger. At least that's what I thought he was doing. And he said, you know, we like to think the Western mind is more sophisticated. But I think the Tibetan heart might be stronger. You know, if maybe if we get the Tibetan heart, the Eastern heart, to work with the Western mind that maybe we can solve this climate change problem. And I think that one of the big things that's missing in the whole narrative and in this exercise in moving forward is that people mistakenly think that this is a conversation about evidence, when in fact that's only part of the conversation. The main part of the conversation has to be about values, and it has to be emotional there has to be an emotional dialogue or there's no meaning. Uh, evidence doesn't create a lot of meaning. Um, fear, maybe. Uh, hatred. Anger. These things are not the future, right? I think you need more of an emotional dialogue that actually allows people to understand what the, you know, what, the, what is the emotional, um, 
alternative to I can't make a difference? What is the emotional alternative to uh, we are doomed <laughs> of the fear that people feel about this issue, the despair that people feel about this issue? That is the conversation that moves, I think, moves us forward. And we have to end it here. Before we end, I just want to ask you each briefly, coming back to, we talked about a lot of issues, what people can do individually. We like to give people something they walk out of here with. What do each of you do to manage your own carbon footprint? And what's the next action you will take to reduce your carbon footprint? John Cook. Um, I guess uh, what I do is, uh, I guess... It's not a single answer to that. It's been a series of steps of just gradually... It's a ladder, constantly climbing up a ladder. What's the it, next rung on your ladder? It's an incremental whittling down of everything mm-hmm. over time. And so so getting solar power, even just a, a matter of picking up the phone and asking my, my electricity provider to switch to green energy. And, and so in, in, a, in one action, it just reduces the house footprint to, to nothing. And, and it, it's a fairly minimal cost. So... Um, at least in Australia it is. So, so I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's just been a, a journey of, of reducing the footprint. It's a continual process. Jim Hogan? Rail against the system, right? I mean, I think that the kind of thing we're doing right here is an exercise in trying to reduce our carbon footprint, this conversation. But I eat less meat. I drive a hybrid. I consume a lot less you know, I do the kinds of things with energy, sadly, where I'm from, you know, solar panels, you know, have kind of a minimal impact. But, uh, you know, I do those kinds of things. That is not the solution. Those are just things that you can do so you're not a hypocrite. But the real solution is at a bigger, you know, a bigger systems level. And we need to hold politicians accountable, especially help politicians who actually want to make a difference. Bud Ward? Well, I agree with all the things Jim just mentioned about things you do personally, but the other other thing I do personally, and this goes back to the last question about you wondering where the path forward is, is it too late? It's not too late. I think we have to convince our, our, our citizens that it's not too late to avoid some of the worst impacts. It is too late to avoid some of the damage. But we still have opportunities, if we can only muster the political will and leadership, there's still opportunities to avoid the worst impacts. And that's a ray of hope that I think we have to leave with. There's a real concern that even those on the most concerned end of the spectrum on this issue are starting to give up. It's too late. I can't do anything about it. Don't. We can, the best minds are telling us we can still avoid the worst impacts. The question is whether we'll do it. We have to end it there. Bud Wars, editor of the Yale Forum on Climate Change in the Media. John Cook is founder of Skeptical Science. Jim Hogan's co-founder of the Smog Blog. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes store. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening.